we're in the book of Ruth. And last week we did this examination. We, we were talking about the importance of reflecting on our life. And, you know, when you look back on last year, for some people it was a good year and some people it was a bad year, right? Or maybe it was a mixture of both of those things. Um, and I know that any time, I don't know about you, but any time I get in the middle of, dif- of dis- difficulty, um, it's really easy to struggle with perspective, is it not? Struggle with perspective. Maybe even ask the question, can God be trusted with my life? I think we've all at some point asked that. Just talked to somebody this week, had lunch with somebody in some disappointments and difficulties who's wrestling with perspective. And I think we all go through that. So my question this morning really is, can God be trusted with my life? And I want to go to the book of Ruth to talk about that, to answer that question. And we're going to read almost the whole thing. Um, so I just want to jump into Ruth. I'm going to pause occasionally and make some comments, that re- things that relate um, to culture. Um, but we really do want to ask, can God be trusted with my life? And we're going to see how, how Ruth answers that question. So chapter 1 of Ruth, starting in verse 1. So in the days when the judges, and I'm reading out of the NIV, by the way. If on your phone you want to get in the same translation, it's the NIV. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, I need you to know, okay, so I'm going to do this occasionally. I need you to know that Bethlehem at this time was a very small village, less than 100 people. It was located in southern Israel in Judah, about five miles southwest of Bethlehem. It's really actually very close. And I want to show you a photo because if you see, do you see Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea from Judah? If you're in Bethlehem and you're looking across, you see the mountains of Moab right over the Dead Sea. That's how close it is. I mean, it is visible. So they're in Bethlehem. There's a famine. They see Moab over there and they decide we're going to go over to that place. Okay. So verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife was Naomi, and the names of, their two, of his two sons were Machlan and Kilion. Their names mean sickly and puny. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Obviously, they had had a lot of difficulty in their life even before the famine to give names like that to their sons. And in a minute, we're going to see why probably Naomi did that. Okay, they were... Uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, Machlan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husbands. So a comment, that left her and her two daughters-in-laws as widows. And widowhood back then was like the worst thing that could happen to you, especially if you had no sons to care for you. It left you destitute in absolute poverty. You know, we talk about sexual trafficking. Frequently, women, widows, would end up, prostitution was the only way they could make money back then. It was the only way they could survive. But they were, so they were in a very desperate situation. So verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home my daughters, why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons 
who could become your husbands. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, and you can hear in that this hopelessness that she felt, which we'll see more of in a minute, okay? Even if there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. That word turned against is a really strong word. It means to show hostility towards. It's to come against strongly. Like God's been hostile to me. So verse 14, at this point, they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where, will, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Okay, I don't, need, I don't have time to go into it, but these words show a very, very clearly in their culture that she had committed her life to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, that she had entered into relationship and worshiped him as the true God, okay? And then she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Like, Naomi's back. So verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Naomi, by the way, means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. My new name is Bitter, with a capital B, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Um, that word just, it's, it conveys deep harshness and anguish, and the tense in Hebrew, it's the perfect, it means like, he's made my life completely bitter, totally bitter. He's like, wiped me out. And then 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. Again, that word is strong in, in the Hebrew. It's a word of somebody coming in opposition against you in a court of law. He's been my adversary opposing me. And the Almighty has brought misfortune on me. The New English translation translates it disaster. It's a really strong word. So Naomi returned, verse 22, from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And I want to stop there. Um, because it's clear to me that Naomi had read the tea leaves of her life and she had made a conclusion about what God was like and what her life was like based on the events that had happened. She drew up in her mind, she created a narrative about God and about her life. Um, look at what she says. Look at verse 13 again. She says, it is bitter for me because the Lord's hand is turned against me. Verses 20 and 21, call me bitter because the Almighty, my, the Almighty has made my life bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This is her summary of her life and of God, based upon the events that happened. Essentially saying, my life is bad. Life is bitter, and I'm bitter. God's been my adversary. He's come against me. He's wrecked my life. And I had no choice in the matter. This is what he did to me. Pretty strong words, is it not? Ever been there? Ever had thoughts like that? Have you ever felt like Naomi said something like that? Maybe not to a person, but it was going on internally. 
Let's move on. Chapter 2, verse 1 sets the stage for what's to come. It's like a parenthesis before verse 2 continues the narrative. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I have found favor. This practice of picking up grain, you see it in the photo, um, it was commanded in the law. That to take care of the poor, of widows, of orphans, and of foreigners, that when you, when you harvested your field, you left, the cl- you left the corners alone. As you turned the corner, you left the grain there. Any grain that fell, fell you left. It's in Leviticus 22. 20, is it 22? I can't. I should look here. 23. It's in Deuteronomy 24. But it's how they survived. So she's going out to do that, to glean the fields. So the end of verse 2. So Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, in Hebrew it's, it just so happened, surprise, surprise, what's really interesting about about the book of Ruth is the narrator hardly mentions God, hardly mentions Him, but His fingerprints are all over the book, little hints like this, four times you'll hear this, oh, it just so happened, surprise, surprise, or behold, guess what, okay, so it just so happened that she was working in the field belonging to who? To Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So just then, that's Hebrew, behold, guess what's coming, right? Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and he greeted the harvesters. Will the Lord be with you? The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvest, who does that young woman belong to? Hmm, kind of caught his eye, right? The overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field. She's remained here from the morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, you go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Because the truth is, in every culture, foreigners are rarely welcomed, right? Rarely welcomed. And I could show you in Leviticus that God says, You're to love the foreigner as you love yourself, because I'm the Lord your God. You were a foreigner in a foreign land. So Boaz is very faithful to the Torah. So verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about you and what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland, you came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it into the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted, and she had some leftover. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it, at the feeding of the 5,000. So she got up to glean. Boaz gave orders to his men, left her, let her gather among the sheaves, and didn't, then he said, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she'd gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah, which is about 30 pounds of grain. That's a lot. Um, Thursday, I took Karen to the airport, 
And he had a bag that was 40 pounds, that for an old man is a little heavy, okay? Um, even though Rochelle was having me do weights to work on my back, that just to pick up the 40. So it was, that was a lot of green, okay? So, 18, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Well, the Lord bless him. (laughs) Bless his heart, as they would say in the South. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. If you know this story, you've heard of this concept of a guardian redeemer, a family redeemer, or a kinsman redeemer. Essentially, it was a person in the family who was called to be a protector of the family, um, to protect and preserve family members, family property, the family name. So if somebody dies, like if a husband dies, a brother dies and his, the wife has no children, he's expected to marry her and then produce children in the family name. Or in their case, they're going to lose property because there's no males in the family. So it's somebody that comes in and marries to preserve the property. Um, if, if somebody in the family is in debt and is actually working, has sold themselves as an indentured servant, they come and pay their debt. So this idea is really important in Jewish culture of, a, of this family redeemer. Um, it's talked about in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, if you want to read that. But it's really important. So, verse 21. Then Ruth, um, the Moabite, said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter. Uh, Trust me, it will be good for you (laughs) to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So chapter 3, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, he is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So I'd like you to wash, put on some perfume, and get dressed in your blessed clothes. Hmm, what's going on here? What do you think? Setting up a marriage maybe? Uh, This isn't your average prom date, but she's dressing up, right? So then go to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go, uncover his feet and lie down. Um, he will tell you what to do. Now I want you to know, this sounds really strange, and I'm going to talk to him in a minute, I'm going to come back to what's going on here. Um, but verse 5, I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. I don't know your culture, but I'll go do that. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And we know the odds are high. I think I've got a photo. She was probably lying perpendicular to his feet. Um, There was something cultural going on here that I'll tell you in just a minute. So that's probably how she's laying with him. There's nothing inappropriate going on. So verse 8, it just so happens, surprise, surprise, That in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but that spread the, the corner of your garment over me was a way of her saying, marry me, okay? Would you marry me? 
Um, something that usually men did, a man would go to a woman, he would put, his, he would put the corner of his, his robe over somebody as an indication that he wanted to marry her. But she's saying, marry me. Um, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. So he kind of was hoping, I think, she'd do this. This kindness you've done. Uh, you've not run after the younger, uh, in Hebrew, cooler hipper men, just teasing, uh, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do all you ask. If I were to put that in the modern English, he's saying, yes, I never thought you would ask. Okay? He accepts the proposal. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. And verse 11, now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. So he's, got, he's accepted the proposal. But there's one obstacle to them marrying. And it's verse 12. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another man who's more closely related than I. And I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm going, to, I'm going to skip a little bit of this. I really encourage you to come back to Ruth and read it later if you don't know. Even if you know, it's a good story. So let me just briefly recount. He sends her home with more grain. Naomi says, I know this man. He's a man of action. I think something's going to happen today. And sure enough, the next morning, he gets up. He goes to the city gates where all the elders and leaders meet, where business is conducted. And he goes there to tell them of his intent to marry her, but that he needs to first ask the other uh, redeemer, guardian redeemer who's kind of in front of him. And it says in the Hebrew, and guess behold, it just so happened who showed up at that moment. That guy shows up and he says, somebody needs to take Naomi's property. She's going to have to sell it and somebody needs to claim it. We need to keep it in the family. You're the nearest, nearest guardian redeemer. And the man says, I'll take it. He thinks he's adding to his investment portfolio. And he says, but it's not just getting her property. You've got to marry that Moabite girl, Ruth. That's part of it. And then he says, I have no interest because that means it's, it, I'm not really going to have it in my portfolio. It's going to stay with Naomi. So I will not marry her. I won't take the property. She's yours. And Boab, it doesn't say, but I'm sure he leaps and jumps and he tells everybody, then it is my intent. I'm going to marry that girl. I'm going to take the property. I'm going to be the guardian redeemer. So chapter 4, look at verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your family like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he, may the Lord become famous throughout all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms, cared for him. The women that living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed or Ovid. He was the father of Jesse and the father of, would you say, the father of who? father of David. So, end of story. Great story. And then the author finishes with the genealogy connecting um, all of this clear back to Jacob. Leave your Bible open. We're going to come back to a couple of verses in a minute. But here's what I learned by the end of the story. Here's what I learned. That Naomi's conclusion about God and her life, that her conclusion about God and life, her life, the narrative that she was telling herself about her situation, and especially about God, was totally incorrect. It was totally incorrect. Um, 
She was doing what I think we all do when we face difficulty. What we tend is when we face difficulty, we tend to focus solely on that difficult circumstance, almost exclusively, and that defines like our whole life and our whole reality. And then what we end up doing is we define everything else, including God, based upon that circumstance. And that's what Ruth did. Rather than trusting in the sovereign goodness of God and seeking his perspective, she allowed her view of her circumstances to dictate how she defined God. Does that make sense? She let her circumstance dictate how she viewed God. And she concluded God is unkind and he's uncaring. Because at the end of chapter 1, she essentially thought her life in all essentially was over. But the reality of her life, so this is what she concluded. The reality of her life is actually this. That we know when we read the story that God was doing something much larger in her life. In her life than she knew. But more importantly, God was doing something much larger than her life, larger than she would ever know. I want to repeat that because this is true of us. God is doing something much larger in my life than my circumstances than I know. And He's doing something much larger than my life, and I'll probably never know that at all. So first, he was doing something much larger in her life. Through Ruth and through Boaz, God redeemed her life. He redeemed her life. To redeem is to take a bad situation and to make it turn out for the good of the person. You don't see it so much in English, but that word redeem occurs 24 times in the Hebrew of Ruth. It's a really important word. God redeemed her life. And here's how he did it. Look at chapter 4, that, that last section we read. Verse 15, that she came to realize that he, was sustained, he sustained her life. And in verse 15, that he renewed her life. He did this by giving her that family redeemer, Boaz, verse 14. And he gave her a brand new family, much more than she ever expected, right? He gave her a son-in-law, somebody, a man of integrity and who was highly respected. And, you know, if you have daughters, you know the importance of having a great son-in-law. He gave her a daughter. I mean, what, what more can you ask for than a daughter, right? A daughter in Ruth, a new daughter. Somebody who's a noble woman, chapter 3, verse 11. A daughter in verse 15 that we're told loved her. The Hebrew word ahav, it's a deep affection. He, she deeply was affectionate with her. A daughter-in-law, in fact, that they conclude is better than seven sons. That's really powerful. Because in their culture, which was more important, to have a son or daughter? If you could only have one, you wanted a son, Right? And in Hebrew culture, the number seven is the number for perfection or completeness. There would be nothing more ideal than having a family of seven sons. That's the ideal family. And they're like, you having Ruth, it's better than the ideal family. That's how God's been to you. And then finally, he gives her a grandson through Ruth. And I want to tell you, if you're a grandparent, it doesn't get any better than that. So God has totally redeemed her life. But it gets even better. It gets better than him redeeming her life because he was doing something much larger than her life, something she would never, ever know, never know. Because God always has larger fish to fry than my life. You know that? God is writing a much larger story than my story, um, than just mine. It doesn't mean that mine's unimportant, but he's got bigger fish to fry. My fish is important. He's got larger fish, okay? God was and he is at work Here's what she didn't realize, that God was and he's at work 
carrying out his redemptive plan for his creation, restoring all things back to himself. That's his desire. Redeeming every lost soul into relationship with him. That's his desire, is to redeem all lost souls. To reach all nations. This is his big plan. That's what he's about. Look again at verse 17, the last half. Because the women there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Ovid, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And if you were to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, and see the genealogy of Jesus, you find out that Ruth and Boaz are right smack in the middle of, his, of the line of descent of the Messianic line to Messiah. They were in the Messianic line. Is that not powerful? They had no clue. No clue of what God was doing. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, once the man and woman rejected him, God had been at work to bring Messiah into the world, the one who would be the ultimate redeemer, the one who would save us from our sins, right? The one who would bless all nations. And unbeknownst to them, to Naomi, to Ruth, in all of their difficulty, all of their story was a part of that larger story. Is that not amazing? A part of that larger story. And I want you to know, I am in the family of God because of them. All of us here, do you know that? Because of Messiah coming through them, because of their story, I have life in Jesus. Can't wait to, to meet them someday. You see, unperceived by a Naomi is that God was at work. He was moving in her life, not only for her good, but for the good of the whole world, the whole world. And all along, he was sovereignly working in her life. He was redeeming it for her good, but also for our good and for my good. So her perception of God through the lens of her difficulty was totally wrong, okay? I get it because I do it. That's why I'm talking about this, because I need this, okay? But it couldn't have been more wrong. So I just want to take a minute and contrast Ruth, the Moabite girl, with Naomi, the Israelite. I just want to do a quick contrast because her perspective on her life was totally different than Naomi. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, it's on the screen if you want to look there. Here's what Boaz says of her. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord of the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She took refuge under the wings of God. Unlike her mother-in-law, who allowed her circumstances to define God for her, she put her trust in God and let him define her circumstances. And she saw him as a mother hen who intimately cared about her children and protected them. And that's how she saw God. And that affected how she saw her life. That's really powerful. Um, that Naomi let God define her circumstances and her life rather than her situation. And she did this not knowing how the story would end. She had no clue how the story would end. But yet she put her hope in him and sought shelter in him. So... That's the contrast between the two. Naomi let her circumstances define her life and God. Ruth let her theology of God, which was solid, define her circumstances and her life. Um, this imagery of a bird, a bird's young, sheltered under its mother, it's really powerful and it's beautiful. I don't, the older I get, the more compact my life gets. I'll be like, oh, six years ago, and I find out it was 20. So I'm guessing about 15 years ago, there was a summer where we had 30 straight days of over 100-degree heat in Emporia. I vividly remember that summer for several reasons. When we went to pick up students, it was so hot. Um, but the other reason I remember it is we had put a bird feeder that summer in one of our windows, a north window, 
and some birds would come and we'd eat out of that and the kids got to watch the bird. And one bird ended up making a nest in the bird feeder. And in the midst of that heat, that bird laid eggs and then eventually the eggs hatched while it was still hot. And we got to witness every day, that bird would occasionally fly off to get food, but spent most of its time in that sweltering heat, in that with her wings spread. Over the babies. And its mouth was just wide agape. And it was panting. The heat was so oppressive on the bird. But she stood there day after day after day, hour after hour, spreading her wings, sheltering her young. So this image got seared into my mind and my heart. When I read these scriptures, that's what I think about. And it got seared not just in my heart, but it's common in the Psalms. Can I show you? Six times this imagery occurs in the Psalms. Like Psalm 91, 1 to 2 and 4 and 5. Whoever built, dwells in the shelter of the, my, the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will cover you with His feathers. Under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. We've all heard that, right? That psalm is so powerful. But here's what I find interesting. Of the six occurrences in the psalms, five of them, of the shadow under the wings, are from the hand of David. And David's the great, great grandson of Ruth. And he knew her story, and he knew that she sheltered herself under the wings of God in times of difficulty, and I think he took her as his role model, and that it became central to the way he thought about God. So can I show you David's words on this? So in Psalm 17, 6 to 8, he says, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you, in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, 5 and 7, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, when David had fled from Saul and was hiding in the cave of Machpelah, I have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster is past. In Psalm 61, 1 to 4, he says, hear my cry, O oh my God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And then Psalm 63, verses 6 to 8. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's what Ruth did. That's what David did. So what about us? What about us? I, mean, there's, I know there's some here today who are in the midst of a storm. If you're not, you will be, right? Probably this year. Maybe like Naomi, you've experienced a loss of some kind. Um, lost a job. You've lost a family member to death. Lost a close relationship with a parent or a child or a friend. Um, maybe like Naomi, 
you're waiting on something and waiting and waiting and it just never happens and you just get unanswered prayer to unanswered prayer to unanswered prayer, hope and longing never fulfilled. The job you're praying for that doesn't come. The spouse you're praying for that doesn't come. The child you're praying for that doesn't come. Or maybe like Nomi, you're afflicted with a lot of misfortune or misfortune like health concern or a financial setback, relational difficulties at work or at home with friends, maybe a wayward child or a wayward parent, unfair personal attacks or betrayal. Maybe you're just suffering the repercussions of poor choices. And like Naomi, you're just struggling keeping it all in perspective. Struggling keeping in perspective. And maybe even asking, can God be trusted with my life? So, regardless of the situation, I just want to challenge you, I challenge myself to be like Ruth, to at all times to see God, see my circumstances through the lens of God, to take refuge in Him, to seek to shelter under His wings. And so the question is, like, what does that look like? What's that look like? And as I thought about it, two things. Number one, I need to cling to Him and I need to cling to His promises. I want to start with clinging to his promises. Specifically, I cling to Romans 8, 28. That God causes all things to work for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. I cling to that. That he makes everything work for my good. Doesn't mean everything is good, but he, he causes all to work for my good. Or I, I take Jeremiah 29, 11, And I know Jeremiah 29, 11 was written to the Jewish people. And it was given to them specifically. But it lines up with Romans 8, 28, so I'm happy to have that verse in my heart. Where God says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. So I cling to that. I cling to the promise of Psalm 23.6. In that famous psalm where it says that surely your goodness and your love will. The NIV says follow. It's, it's in Hebrew, it's pursue. Will pursue me all the days of my life. His goodness is pursuing me. Or I cling to Psalm 27. 13, where he says, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So I cling to his promises, and I really cling to him, knowing that he's my refuge, that he's my shelter, that only under him alone will I find what I need, that I run to him, like Proverbs 18 says, the strong tower, I run to him in my difficult times. In the words of Charles Wesley, I rest beneath the Almighty's shade, my griefs expire, my troubles cease. Thou Lord on whom my soul is stayed with will keep me still in perfect peace. And I think part of how I do this, um, if you've got the notes on the back, I've got those psalms put in a particular order that I'm probably not going to do right now, but I put them in an order. It's just a declaration of who he is. You can make this a prayer if you're struggling, finding him to be your refuge. Um, I encourage you to do that. Grab a notes page on the way out if you don't. It's, those psalms are worth it just for, for that, just for that. So grab that. So cling to him, and I cling to his promises. And when I talk to somebody this week, it's like, you've got to get, we've got to get a lot more practical than that, okay? And which was helpful. So just quickly, how do I cling to him and his promises? You have got to be a person of the word of God. Do you know that? Because his promises are here, and if you want to know his character, you need to be regularly in the word of God. You've got to be a person of the word and a prayer encountering him. So the word and prayer are crucial. Worship, you've got to continue to, so continue in the word, even in difficulty. Worship is important. I sing songs like Waymaker or The Goodness of God. 
because I, sometimes I don't believe those words, and I'm not singing because I believe, but I'm singing to believe. Does that make sense? So worship, I think, is important. I think the other thing is community. Don't isolate, but dig into community. People who love Jesus, get around them, right? And say, hold me accountable to being in the Word, to not walking away from Him. And help me have God's perspective. Like, read Ruth to me. You know, remind me that God's doing more than I can see. So, in all of this, I am learning from Ruth. Here's what I'm learning from Ruth. To trust in the sovereign goodness of God because he is doing something in my life I have no clue. But more importantly, he has a whole plan of redemption and he's weaving my story into that and he's doing things in other places and other people's lives that my story will echo into and I have no clue until eternity. I'll never know. So I trust him with that. Trust his wisdom even when I can't see it. Though I can't see his hand, I trust in his heart. Uh, I hope this one's worth it. We're going to end in a song in a minute. So if the worship team can come out. I can't bypass this hymn. Written by William, William Cowper. I think it speaks so much to this story. Some of the most famous hymns we sing were sung by him, written by him. He struggled with depression and a lot of doubt. Came to a point in his life, he decided to commit suicide. So one night, he was a Brit, an English dude. He called a carriage, lived in the 1800s, called a carriage to take him to a bridge at the nearby river, and his intent was to jump off. And when he got in the carriage, um, he got in the carriage, and as soon as they got in, a heavy fog fell over the city. The carriage driver couldn't even see where he was going, just drove around, couldn't, make, couldn't quite tell where he was, and then when he eventually stopped and said, you may, you may get out, when he stepped out, he was back at his own doorstep. And he went in and he realized that God had provided that fog to save him from doing the thing he had decided to do. And he walked in his house and he penned this hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Amen? And when will he make it plain? In eternity. eternity. Would you stand with me? Um, we, we, send, we want to end by singing of the goodness of God that Naomi and Ruth experienced. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me all my days. I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head. 
I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire. The darkest night, you are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath. God not good? He not good? Father, thank you for this story of Ruth. Thank you for giving us this little snapshot of somebody's life who lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere and how even though they thought you had come against them, that actually you were working powerfully in their life and more importantly, you worked for your larger purposes through their life. And help us, Lord, to rest in the fact and to, to, to come under the shadow of your wings knowing that you're doing the same thing for me. 
that Naomi's story, that Ruth's story, that it's my story. Not in exactly the same way, but you're the same God who was, who is, and who is to come. The same yesterday, today, forever. And so we lean into you today and pray in your name. Amen. All right, 12th, you're sent to rest under his wings. If somebody's needing prayer, you're in a difficulty, I'm going to hang up here. If you want to come up and do that, I'd love to pray for you. So, all right, 12th, you are sent.